Let us pray for the preached word. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your spirit among us, that he would come and open our hearts to receive the word that you have prepared for us today, that you would be kind to us as we come in obedience to you, that you would fulfill your promise to continue to grow us and sanctify us through these ordinary means. We ask these things in the name of your great Son. Amen. Well, good morning once again. If you turn with me in Mark's Gospel, Mark's Gospel chapter 6. Our text today will begin in verse 7 and we'll handle down through verse 13. Mark 6. Verses 7 to 13. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have, in a sense, been seeing with the eyes of faith through the scriptures, through the word of God, the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw on last Sunday, last Lord's Day, where the words and works of Jesus were actually the point not of life, but of offense in his hometown the neighbors with whom he grew up, the other children with which he played, his own brothers and sisters were rejecting him. We've seen his authority over storms and demons. We've seen him display his, his authority to, to speak truth in ways that the people had never even heard before. We've been able to witness the work of our Savior, who is the Son of God. We've been able to hear His words. But up until this point, up until this point in Jesus' ministry, He has been doing, as it were, all the work. All the preaching and all the teaching that we've heard has come from the mouth of Jesus alone. All the works that we've seen, all of the mighty works, all the wonders have been done from the hand and by the voice of Jesus alone. But as we're going to see in today's text, that begins to change. Verse 7 tells us that he called the twelve and began to send them out. The, the structure of the verbs in the original language indicates this, wasn't a, this was a new development. This wasn't something that was kind of gradually increasing. There's a point in time when from this day forward, he's beginning to send them out. What do we make of that? Well, what's the point? Number one, why is, why is Mark telling us this? But also in the life and the ministry of Jesus, in the life and discipleship of these 12 men, what's the point? What does this accomplish? What's its, what's its intended result? And I am persuaded that this passage that we're reading today is about training the twelve. This is their training. This is, in a sense, their laboratory by which they take the things that their master has been teaching them by both word and example, and then he begins to send them out to test them, to try them in that sense. So what we observe in this text is training. We are observing their preparation for the work of ministry. It's a testing. It's a trial of their gifts. It's a testing. It's a trial of their commitment to the apostolic ministry, 
to which they are going to be called. Now, there's a temptation that arises at this point. As soon as I have said, this is ultimately about their training for ministry, there's a temptation that comes. The temptation might be for some of you to say, well, this doesn't apply to me then. This is about apostolic training for apostolic ministry. I'm not an apostle. I mean, I'm not even a regular pastor. This doesn't apply. I can kind of tune out at this point. Please don't do that. Number one, we have the conviction that all Scripture, every word of God is profitable for us. For every child of God, not only certain people, but also every Christian has a responsibility with respect to the proclamation of the gospel. All of us share duties. All of us share responsibilities with respect to the proclamation of the Word of God, the health and and peace and welfare of His churches. And so we must pray, participate in, support, evaluate the gifts, steward our own God-given gifts for the sake of Christ and on behalf of His body. So it would be wrong for us to think that this only applies, that this passage only applies to a certain sliver of God's people. This text, this sermon, I believe, has much to say to all of us regarding how our Lord trained His men for ministry. And from that, what and how we, as God's people, should prioritize the working of ministry, the training of men, in like manner. So here I want to divide this. It's a short passage, verses 7 to 13. We've only got seven verses here, but I want to divide this under three heads, just to kind of organize the sermon. And again, all of this, the title of the sermon is Training the Twelve. Everything we're going to see here is, is, is owing to our Lord's testing, trying, training them. And the first thing that we're going to notice is they are trained under his authority, and this is critical. They are trained under his authority. But secondly, they are trained in commitment to the work. Their training is such that they are learning how to be committed to the work of the ministry. And thirdly, they are trained for, specifically trained for proclamation. They are trained for proclamation. So if you so to simplify this, three, three key words, authority, commitment, and proclamation. Authority, commitment, and proclamation. Let's read the text of Scripture together, beginning in verse 7 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. 
and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. If you're reading from a King James Version or New King James Version, you will notice that the ESV, from which I'm reading, the NSB follows the same pattern, omits the last part of verse 11. This is recorded for us in, in explicitly in Matthew's Gospel, but it was probably in some of the older manuscripts, and it says, I tell you the truth, it would be better for these places, for these cities in the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice, in the first place, that the twelve are trained, they are tested, they are tried under the authority of Jesus himself. Notice the language, especially the verbs that we see in verses 7 and 8. He called, he sent, he gave, he charged, he said. All of this must be seen in reference, immediate reference to Jesus Christ himself. And notice, if, you, if we would turn over to, to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10, may you put that in your notes to read later. I'm not going to read the text just now. But Matthew's parallel account of this is longer. It, it's significantly longer. And when we, when we put the two texts together, what we find with respect to the authority of Jesus, he is the one calling, sending, giving, charging, and saying. And he says to them, he declares who, first of all, is sent. Mark tells us it's, it's the 12. By this point, there is a growing number of disciples that are following Jesus. But it is only the 12 that he sends out. He sends out two by two in six pairs in this trial, in this testing of their gifts. But Jesus is the only one who determines who is sent. Jesus tells, Jesus tells them where to go. Matthew's account tells them not to go to the Gentile lands, but only to the house of Israel. Jesus declares what they say. They are to go and preach the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, to declare to men that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that the right response to that is to believe that gospel and to repent. Jesus alone, under his authority, says what is to be said. Further, the Son of God declares what they may receive as they travel, as they go. What are they to take with them? What are they to receive from the people to whom they minister? The Son of God declares how to know if someone has genuinely received him or not. You know, you think about this, in, in, especially in the Jewish areas, at least on paper, at least you, you would think, they are eager to receive their Messiah. And there's a lot of, there was a whole lot of messianic chatter at this particular time. People were eager, at least outwardly, to, to say, we, we want, we're waiting for our, our Messiah, we're waiting for the anointed one. But Jesus says, but there will be false converts. And how do you know? How will you know if someone genuinely has received me? Further, under his authority, under their, their training, Jesus declares the consequence of rejecting him. And that when the, the disciples are sent out two by two and they go and declare the gospel of the kingdom, and if men reject that, they are not rejecting the disciples. They are rejecting Christ. They are rejecting their Messiah. And that comes at great consequence. 
Saints, we need to notice here that the Son of God grants true, real authority to his disciples. But this is an authority that is not original to them. It is an authority that is delegated by the Son of God. It is derived from his person and work. It's not original to him. And part of their training is to recognize that. I don't care who you are or what industry you're in or what sphere of influence you're in. Leadership can come with the temptation, in fact, often does come with the temptation, to exercise your own authority, to exercise authority unjustly or inordinately. And Jesus is very clear from the beginning that all of their training, all of their preparation for the work of the ministry is under him. He is not sending them out to innovate. He is not sending them out to blaze their own trails. He's not sending them out to do things their own way. He's saying, I'm the one calling you, sending you, giving you what you need, charging you to obedience, and instructing you on what you should teach. Thus, the consequence of this is those that are sent by Christ may only speak what they are authorized to speak. Well, that should sound fairly basic, shouldn't it? But how much have we lost sight of that sometimes? Where those who claim to speak for Christ are speaking things that he has not spoken. But, but the other consequence of this is that, that if, they, if these speakers, if these disciples, as part of their training, embrace the authority of Christ and speak clearly and accurately and faithfully his words, then what is the duty of those who hear them? to believe them, to obey them. The words that they speak must be obeyed because they represent the very voice of Christ himself. And immediately, I think it should become important to us or evident to us how important it is that messengers who are sent out to speak the word of Christ are actually called and authorized by Christ. This should should cause us to be very careful to guard against the self-anointed apostle, the self-proclaimed preacher. It is Christ who authorizes men to speak on his behalf, and no institution in all of the world, not no organization on the entire planet can make a minister of the gospel. None can. It is Christ alone, by the power and authority of his Holy Spirit alone, that can call a man into the ministry, commission him for the charge, and cause him to flourish in a local church. J.C. Ryle makes this observation. I found this helpful. He says, these verses describe the first sending forth of the apostles to preach. The great head of the church made proof of his ministers before he left them alone in the world. He taught them to try their own powers of teaching and to find out their own weaknesses while he was yet with them. Thus, on the one hand, he was enabled to correct their mistakes. Thus, on the other, they were trained for the work they were one day to do and were not novices when finally left to themselves Well would it be for the church if all ministers of the gospel were prepared for their duty in like manner and did not so often take up their offices untried, unproved, 
and inexperienced. Jesus tested his disciples. He tried them. He, he gave them opportunity to try their gifts. We as parents, don't we do the same kinds of things with our children? As our kids grow older and, and are more mature, we give them opportunity. Why don't you cook dinner tonight? Learn those skills. You, you take on these responsibilities while you're yet in our home, and that way you're still, in a sense, working with a net. You have the opportunity to be, to be sharpened, to be corrected, to be encouraged and exhorted and, and, and made better with your skills. How much more should this be the case with those who would speak on behalf of Christ? Jesus tested. He tries his disciples at every point. And here's the key issue here. Will they or will they not submit themselves to his divine authority? Will they constrain their own speech to that which he has told them to preach? Will they recognize his ability and his authority and his unique power to seek and to save the lost? Or will they seek to go their own way? Will they seek to place their confidence in programs or other initiatives rather than what Christ has given to them? And see, saints, every Christian stands under the authority of Christ, whether a preacher or a hearer. Whether preacher or hearer, each one of us must make the Lord Jesus Christ our only source of true authority. Christ and his word alone. But being tested as to the authority of Christ is, is, is not the only course in their training, as it were. The authority of Jesus 101 was not the only class they took this semester. There's other instruction that they must learn. They were also trained in order to be committed to the work. You know, there's, there's the, 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 the passage that comes next, beginning in verse 8, can seem somewhat odd to us. Verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. As a father in a large family, this, mind, this is mind-boggling to me, how anyone could take a trip like this. We are usually loaded to the rafters just to go across town, it seems like. But he tells them, take nothing with you. Take nothing for their journey except a staff. And he's specific, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Then, even further, he says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart there. In other words, you stay in whatever house you end up in when you first arrive in a village or a town, that's where you stay until you're through ministering in that town. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, what is Jesus getting at? What's the purpose of this? Why would he send them out almost empty-handed? And there's a question that comes here. Is this descriptive or prescriptive? Some of you know the terms. Is this simply describing what happened, or is this a prescription for now and forevermore how it ought to happen? Jesus sends them out with only the barest essentials, only the necessities. I'm going to argue this passage is descriptive, 
This is a particular set of circumstances in a particular place in time as part of their testing, as part of their training. Sadly, the passage has been used to make the case that pastors, men who've made the gospel ministry their full-time vocation, ought not to be compensated. Or they should be compensated very meagerly. And, and practically speaking, isn't this very sad? Not only for a, a man and his family, but for the whole church because they're often poorly served or served by a constant rotation of men coming in. One of the churches of which we were a part years ago was in a rural area about an hour south of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Fort Worth. And there's one long hall in the church coming from the main foyer to the fellowship hall. The church is about 60 or 70 years old, and they've had something like 30 pastors. Because there's a constant churning of men coming out of seminary, basically taking a new, younger man, because they could pay him very little, and after he served for a few years and he builds up his resume, he goes on to another place. And that's not just that church, it's common all over the place. And, and I think what, what he's doing here is he's training his men not to think in that way. Not to think in that way. It's sad for another reason, not only for the sake of the men who are deprived of, of a livelihood or their families, but it's, it's, it's sad for a church who's missing out on the blessing of having someone devoted to the work of the ministry. But it's also sad because it neglects the whole counsel of God's Word. Later on, so the question is this descriptive or prescriptive? Jesus says to them, take nothing with you. Don't take a bag, don't take bread, don't take any money. But what do we do with this? How do we reconcile that with what we find in Luke chapter 22? There, Jesus tells them almost the opposite. In Luke chapter 22, he said, he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times that you knew me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, no, nothing. Then he said to them, but now... He who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. They have a purpose. So they said, look, or Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Now, there's more going on in this passage. I just simply want to put before you the comparison. It cannot be prescriptive in Mark chapter 6 that in every circumstance, in every time, in every age, that men are sent out empty-handed. Here, he's telling his disciples, where before I told you not to take your money, this time take it. Not to take a bag, this time take it. Not to take bread, this time have bread. How do we reconcile these? Well, here's the thing, I think. Early in their training, the disciples were sent with almost nothing. Later on, Jesus tells them they need to make material preparation for their ministry. What's the difference? Number one is training versus going to the real thing. Now, what was he training them for? It was more than just their skills that he was training and testing. It was their hearts. It was how they viewed the work of the ministry. On the one hand, 
the disciples were learning lessons about dependence upon the Lord. They were learning how to trust him for their material provision. And they had to learn to trust him. They had to trust his word. They had to trust his providential rule. And until they learned that lesson, they really weren't going to be a lot of help ministering to others. But later, they would need to be able to give their full time, their full attention to the work of the ministry. And they were going to need material support in order to do that. Jesus says these are dark and difficult days, but here's the important lesson. We get so bogged down sometimes with material things. We get so bogged down with the things of this world that we're unable to go if Jesus calls us. We're so encumbered by our possessions, by our stuff, that we can't answer a call. Man, if the Lord called you to ministry, could you conceivably go? Have you so hindered yourself with the things of this world that you're not in a position to answer a call and to follow after the Lord in that way? Are you so attached to your possessions, your lifestyle, your vocation, that you couldn't realistically even fathom giving those things up? I think there's an implication here. In, as, as Jesus is training his disciples, we, we want to look forward throughout the history and the life of the church. And there is an application here for young men. Young men who may consider a call to the gospel ministry. And I, and I pray that the Lord among us would raise up some of our own sons for the work of the ministry. It's a noble calling. It is a wonderful calling. And the, perhaps the Lord may one day call one of you, boys, young men, to serve him in this way. But notice, here's what he's doing. He's training them from the beginning to have their affections oriented in such a way, to have their affections trained where they're on the things of heaven and not on the things of this world. I think there's, there's, there's helpful exhortations to us if we will hear them. As parents, how are we shaping the affections of our children? Are we encouraging their affections to be earthbound? Are we encouraging their affections to be heavenward? Are we encouraging them to accumulate the treasures of this world or to, in a sense, travel lighter, be more useful in the kingdom of God? Perhaps the Lord one day will call our own sons to proclaim his word and to serve and care for the flock that he purchased with his own blood. And as I've meditated upon this text, I've come to a... a, a firm persuasion here that Jesus is training his men to be committed to the work. This is not about, do you have a bag or not have a bag? Do you have a money belt or do you not have a money belt? The central issue is, are you committed? Are you willing to stick it out? And he sends them out on a small circuit. He said, you're going to face hardship. You're going to first face scarcity. You're going to face the difficulties of where to stay and what to eat. Will you stick to it anyway? Or are you going to fold the first time that hardship comes? He's testing them to see if they will persevere even when they do not have 
their material needs met. Even when they face opposition, will they carry on? Even when people reject them and reject their message, will they continue to preach? You know, Paul testified in Philippians 4 that he had to learn this himself. As an apostle, as a minister of the gospel, Paul said, I re- he was, and he's writing to the Philippian church because they had sent an offering to him. They'd sent a gift to help him materially. And he said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity previously. Not that I speak in regard to need. Listen to what he says. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I keep on keeping on by the Lord's grace and strength. So as Jesus is sending out his disciples, part of their training is, are you willing to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel? You know, it's not in my notes, but I think about this with respect to other types of training. Think of something like medical school. And you know me, I got through high school and biology, or high school and college without a single biology course. I'm as far from a doctor as anybody can be. But I have a respect and an admiration for the kind of grueling training that doctors have to go through, to go through a residency program. They push them, work 24 hours or 48 hours straight with no sleep. Are you able to do that or do you quit? For a soldier to go through basic training, to have your body and your mind pushed to the limits, are you going to quit? Or is this the life for you? That's what they're asking. And Jesus is doing something similar with his disciples. Go out with no bag, no money, no food, the sandals on your feet, and one tunic only, and you go and preach my gospel in my name. And in some places, you're going to be warmly received. It's going to be a great day. People will, be, will hear you and listen to you, and the very next day, some of those same people will curse you, will spit on you, and will run you out of town. Are you going to quit? Are you going to give up? See, he's also, I think, testing their integrity. He's telling them, are you willing to accept what's offered to you rather than continuing to chase something bigger, nicer, fancier? You know, it's not hard to imagine this scenario. You go into a new village, first day you're there preaching at the synagogue, and and there's a sweet lady that comes up to you and says, you're welcome to stay in my home. I don't have much. I've got a cot on the roof, but it's yours. You're welcome to it. The next Sabbath day, you're in the synagogue, and a wealthy man comes and said, I have a whole wing in my estate that's yours. You're welcome to stay there. Well, immediately, the temptation's clear, isn't it? Well, sure, I can upgrade. The little widow lady that took care of me, thank you, sweetie. I'm, I'm grateful for your hospitality. But God, Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Shape your minds, train your minds to think in terms of this is what the Lord has provided for me and I'm willing to stay because it's not about my my accommodations. It's not about the things that I enjoy. It's about the work to which I've been called. He's testing their integrity. Are they willing to accept what's offered to them? He's testing their willingness to 
sacrifice for the sake of the ministry? Are you willing to do without yourself? Are you willing, even in the face of possible material blessings, are you willing to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me? He's also testing and trying their response to, obje- to rejection. In many of these places, he says, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Coming out of college, my first job was in outside sales, industrial sales. And one of the things that was trained into us from the very beginning, before I ever got to go see a customer by myself, is that you've got to expect rejection. And, and for whatever, however many knows it's going to take before you get to a yes, you've got to learn how to persevere in that as a sales guy. You can't be discouraged with that. You go to the first door, would you like to buy my product? No, get out of here. Oh, I quit, I'm done. Well, you're not gonna be a very good salesman, are you? Well, how much more in heavenly things? How much more for the minister of the gospel to go to the very first town or the second town or the third town and, and no one wants to hear you? They reject you. They call you names. They spit upon you. They call your master names. They say, well, you're here following the Beelzebul guy. Will they quit? Will they give up? He's testing to see if once their hand was set to the plow, would they turn back? My mind immediately goes, a young man named John Mark who on his first journey with Paul did turn back, didn't he? He fled. In fact, it was such a traumatic time that later on it led to the rift between Paul and Barnabas. It led to a schism because Paul said, I don't want him to go again. I can't trust this young man that he won't quit again. And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, said, no, I I want to take him. I think there's still something there. History reveals that they were probably both right. Paul was probably wise not to take him at that stage because he wasn't tested well. But Barnabas was right too. And by the end of his ministry, Paul would write and say, bring John Mark, he's useful to me for ministry having been further tested, further refined. Now, saints, this is not to say that as as we think about the training of the disciples here and their willingness to commit to a place, commit to the ministry, regardless of their other, other circumstances, this is not to say that, for example, that a pastor can never leave a church that he serves. I would never make that, that argument, but for what reasons? Is this simply a step, a rung on a ladder that he's climbing? To go from one church to a bigger church to a bigger church? Or are there other true and good and, and, and faithful reasons to depart from the ministry? I've seen firsthand in my, in my own ministry the, 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 the hardship that comes when a man is sent out and he's not tested first. He's not tried first. I was sent out as one of two. And the other one was not tested, was not refined. And very quickly, he made it known he did not want to do the work of the ministry. 
didn't morally disqualify himself in any way. But he wasn't committed to the work. And great harm can come to a church, to a ministry, when, when a man is not tested in these ways. We see the wisdom of our Savior in testing their commitment. How does this help us? How does this text help us think about the responsibilities of those who are ministered to? Those who receive the Word of God. How ought they to respond to the ministry of the Word based on what we learn in this text? Because Jesus is not only testing the proclaimer, but also the hearers. Jesus says to the disciples, they, they were not to stay and press upon those who did not want to hear. Does that strike you as odd advice to them? As a, as a strange command? If they don't listen to you, just leave. He doesn't say they don't listen to you. Try again. Try the other angle. Try a different tack. Try a different strategy. And shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. It doesn't mean we, we give up easily in the proclamation of the gospel, but it does mean there are times when we do. We recognize this is fruitless here. Perhaps the Lord would open another door to us elsewhere. Jesus does not tell them to persevere, to keep pressing until they finally get the answer they want to hear. Instead, he tells them, move on. We're seeing here their training with respect to the, to the authority of Christ. We're seeing here their training with respect to their commitment to the work of the ministry. I'm persuaded that's what this is about when he charges them to take nothing with them. This is not a prescription for all ministry in all times, this was their training. Are they really committed to this? Are they willing to stick it out? Well, let's see in the last place, they were trained specifically for proclamation. They were trained for proclamation. Jesus calls the 12. He begins to send them out two by two. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. He charges them what they can take and what they cannot take. And he says to them, Here's where you go, and here's what you say when you get there, and here's how you respond to belief and unbelief. Then in verse 12, so they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Our Lord's training of his men demonstrates that proclamation of the Word of God is the chief, it is the primary, it is the fundamental apostolic and pastoral duty. All true ministers of the gospel must follow this same pattern of priority. I think it's instructive, as they went out, there were all kinds of things under the name and authority of Christ they could have done. But the instructions from their, from their Savior was to go and to preach, to proclaim that the gospel, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know what? The rest of the New Testament bears this out precisely. It bears this out precisely. So for example, in Acts chapter 6, after the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus, after his pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, recorded in Acts chapter 2, we see that early controversy in chapters 3 and 4 and 5 in the church. But in Acts chapter 6, Luke records for us the church had been growing rapidly. And with that came a dilemma. 
there was a controversy that erupted within the church because the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, were accusing the church, and particularly the Hebrew-speaking Jews, of neglecting the Hellenistic widows in their daily distribution. And so there was a, a, a recipe, there's a potential for a huge disturbance in the church. And listen to how the apostles responded to this. In Acts chapter 2, or in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 2, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. They summoned the whole church and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So why would they say that? Because that's exactly what they were trained to do. This is exactly how the Lord Jesus had trained them, to prioritize the proclamation of the word. It is not that they saw the, the, the serving of tables as beneath them or less than the dignity of their office. In fact, they had been doing all of that. The problem was the scale of the operation had come, become such that they could not both preach and pray and also serve tables. They were very concerned about the welfare of these dear widows in their midst, and they wanted to make sure that their own failures, their own human limitations, did not cause these dear sisters to suffer or cause a breach to come within the fellowship of the church. But they said, Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. In other words, deacons. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. See, this is the result of their training. This is precisely how Christ had trained them to prioritize the proclamation of the Word. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's Paul, years later, pressing in upon a church and pressing in upon a young pastor who's serving in Ephesus. What are the priorities? What do I do first? Paul, what do I, what do I focus on? All these needs. I'm in, an, I'm in an idolatrous, pagan city with all kinds of vile practices all around me. Even church member to church member, they're lying to each other. They're angry with each other. There are marriages that are falling apart. What, what do I prioritize? Preaching sound doctrine, and believe that God will use those instruments to shape his people and to call sinners out of darkness. First Timothy 4, beginning in verse 13, Paul says, Till I come, Timothy, give attention to reading, to exhortation, that's preaching, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy when the laying, with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the teaching. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Devote yourself, Timothy, to the preaching of the Word of God, and trust that the power of the risen Christ through His Holy Spirit will be at work among His people. See, Jesus sent them with instructions regarding what to proclaim. He sent them with instructions to cast out demons, to heal people. See, now we're back to this issue of, of authority. And what do we make of, the, of Jesus' statement, or Mark's statement, that Jesus gave authority over the unclean spirits? It's very clear that they went out and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. It's very clear 
that they cast out demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed. So again, the question is this, descriptive or prescriptive? Is this now the charge of every pastor in every place? Preach, but also you need to heal people. You need to cast out demons. Well, this was part of their particular training. This was part of their particular circumstances. That is no longer the instruction given to pastors, but there still are instructions, are there not? Things that must be prioritized. Listen to Matthew Henry. They had received that they might give, had learned that they might teach. And therefore, how now, therefore now, he began to send them forth. They must not always be studying in the academy to get knowledge, but they must preach in the country to do good with the knowledge they have got, though they were not as yet so well accomplished as they were to be, yet according to their present ability and capacity, they must be set to work and make further improvements afterwards. So this will help us think through, what do we, how do we, what do we make of the accompanying description? The disciples cast out demons. They, they healed all of the sick. Well, the answer, I think, is that it flowed directly from the authority that Christ had given to them. He gave that authority, and they exercised that authority accompanying the proclamation they made of the kingdom. So it's a proclamation of the kingdom accompanied with specific instructions. The question is, do the specific instructions to Christ's ministers and to Christ's church today include casting out demons and healing? And the answer is no. Is it still a priority on proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Yes. Are there other instructions that have been given to churches and to pastors instead of healing the sick and casting out demons? Those were acts of of power to signify, to verify, to authenticate the word of God being preached. That's no longer necessary. So the question, or the, the, clearly the text now, we have to understand is descriptive, but not prescriptive. This does not make this normative for Christian ministry. But what is normative for Christian ministry? It's a description of their following the very specific instructions that, God, that Jesus gave to them. That's what's normative. That's what's prescriptive, is that the ministers of the gospel follow the instructions they're given. Every soldier acting under authority carries out the orders given to him. One soldier in an ancient war might be given one set of instructions. A soldier in a different war will be given a different set of instructions. Jesus has not given the same instructions to cast out demons and to heal the sick. But the command to preach remains the same. Proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And now accompanying that command is not casting out demons or healing the sick, but now accompanying the command to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom is a command to make disciples of all the nations. It's a command to baptize those who make a credible profession of faith. It's accompanied with the command to preach the gospel is a command to disciple those who believe it 
and trained them to follow the commands of Christ. There are instructions to oversee the sacraments, to instruct and exhort the saints with all authority, to be an example of good conduct, and the list goes on and on and on. The point is, the apostles did not choose for themselves what they would do, what they would prioritize. The Lord Jesus gave them that that instruction, that priority, and so it is with us. Preach the kingdom. Matthew records the commanded message from Jesus in this way, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this message remains. It's also remaining, what also is remaining is the king's exclusive right to determine what the message is. The apostles, the disciples here, were not given liberty to deviate from the message. They were not authorized to preach a different message or an additional message or a uh, redacted message, a slimmer, more palatable message. They were not allowed to subtract from the gospel to make it more appeal, more of a greater appeal to their Jewish friends and family. They were not permitted to add words to it. Oh, if only we would, would listen and obey this training. As a church, church, you know this, as a church member, you have every right. In fact, you have a duty, a positive duty to insist that I preach the Word of Christ. Not my own imagination, not politics, not pet projects, not social justice, not psychology, not my own opinions, not even your opinions. I have a duty as a messenger of Jesus Christ to preach His Word. And you have a duty. You have a duty as a Christian, as a church member, to insist that I or anybody else who would teach here proclaim faithfully and fully the words of our king. Part of their training as they were sent out is would they, stick, would they stay on script? Would they stick to the message? Or would they succumb to a temptation that is real and present and always active in every generation to modify the message? To tweak it just a little bit. To, to withhold something that might be offensive or to add something to it that might make it more enticing. Part of their training was, will you stay on message, the gospel of the kingdom? To the pastor today, he would say, will you stay on message? It's the same gospel of the kingdom. Will you also believe that that same means by which men and women are called out of darkness and into light is also the same means by which they are sanctified, built up, firmly established, preserved, until the day of glory. But one other thing must be noted, Jesus explains to them that some are going to reject the message of the gospel. Part of their training was to realize and to come literally face to face with the reality of the gospel being rejected. It was one thing to be there in the crowd when Jesus spoke and his message was rejected. It's another thing yourself to stand up and preach and then have it rejected. And Jesus is testing them to see 
will you persevere in the face of that kind of opposition? In fact, in Matthew's account of the event, he records Jesus saying, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment than these cities. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah experienced the full hell fire of the Lord. He destroyed the city in fire and brimstone. And those cities had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it. They were great and wicked cities. We heard that in our our Old Testament reading this morning. They were wicked cities. And yet they had not rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying it will be worse for a Jewish city, for a Jewish village, for a Jewish man or woman to hear this gospel and reject it. And the same is true today. The same is true this afternoon. Those of you who are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you are rejecting that, you will be held to a stricter judgment than those who never heard, who never had the opportunity to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked cities, but they rejected a lesser light. Those today who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it are are rejecting much greater light. So what about you? As you sit here today, have have you believed and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you believed who he is? That he truly is the Son of God? that his mission was to come, to take on human flesh, to seek and to save the lost, and that by God's enabling, in the perfection of his humanity, he he kept all of the law, all the requirements of God, lived perfectly and sinlessly and righteously until God's appointed time for him to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sin, for your sin. Do you believe that? Have you turned away from your sin and turned toward God through Jesus Christ? This was at the heart of our Lord's training of his disciples. As we work through the rest of Mark's gospel in the coming weeks and months, uh, may the Lord help us to think in terms of these, these priorities that the Lord placed upon the minds and upon the shoulders of his disciples. How wise was he not to wait until after he was resurrected and to send them out untested, untrained, and for the sake of their own confidence, for the sake of the purity of the message, we see him sending them out, as it were, on a trial run. You see, will you obey my word? Will you you submit yourself to my authority? Will you remain committed to the task, even if physically it's hard to bear? Even if materially you lack? Even if relationally you are rejected, will you stay the course? Will you give up? Will you turn away? Will you stay on message? Will you actually teach what I've told you to teach? Will you proclaim what I've told you to proclaim? Or will you alter the message? 
And I submit to you, there's a great deal of wisdom in our Lord's actions. By sending these men out, there's a great deal of, of, of comfort to his own heart, according to his humanity, that these men were, were doing what he told them to do. But also building up in them a growing confidence as they came back and they gave their reports. They came back and shared with their master what they had done, what they had experienced, and he was able to debrief with them and, and explain to them and help correct them here and encourage them there. What a great gift it was. As much for us as a church, much for us to learn as Christians of, of how we can encourage and support and uh, participate in this kind of training and the value that this is to future generations of the Lord's church. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the knowledge that you've made yourself known as, as we read and study our Lord Jesus Christ has revealed to us in the Gospels, has further revealed to us in all of the Scriptures. Will you grant to us the grace of, first of all, of believing Him, of resting in Him, of trusting Him? Will you also build us up and increase our faith where we confess that our faith is often weak and feeble that as you, just as you tested those who preach, you also test those who hear. You refine us, you shape us. And we pray that you will grow us in our confidence that you will keep us, that you will hold us fast, that you will cause us to persevere. Help us to delight in our Savior, to believe the gospel of his kingdom, and to rest in your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.